Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Signs. This series looks at the seven signs found in the Gospel of John, symbolic events that call us to embrace Jesus as the Lord who has come to redeem his people. We're going to uh, be beginning a new series today. We're going to be looking at the seven signs in John's Gospel between now and Easter Sunday. Um, And today we're going to begin by looking at the first of the signs in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. As always, the scripture is going to be up here on the screen. You can follow along uh, as well in your Bible or uh, on your electronic device. Uh, I'm going to actually be using the uh, 2011 NIV during this series. I normally use the 1984 version, but in this series, uh, because they translated the word sign, what I believe is better, uh, I'm just going to normally use the NIV 2011. So you can follow along again, and the text is also in your booklet. So hear now the word of the living and reigning God. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you save the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. As I said, we're going to be studying these seven signs in John's Gospel. And we live in a world that's full of signs. Many of you may have noticed as you drive down the road, what is there to give us directions? Road signs. See, the women know that because, guys, we don't need signs, right? We don't need signs or directions for where we're going, right? Now, another thing that is a sign is what just happened if you were a guy and your wife was looking at you that's called a nonverbal sign where there is a lot of communication that goes on without saying a word uh, but it can still communicate to us nonetheless we all also have even physical signs in our body about a year ago i started experiencing trouble in the back of my left shoulder and i thought i'd pulled a muscle when i was weightlifting, and in fact When I went and saw a doctor, he said, no, I don't think so, and they did an MRI, and it was actually that I had uh, bulging discs up in my neck. And so that was pointing to a problem that was actually existing somewhere else, and so I ended up having to go through three months of physical therapy. My point is, all the way around us, all the time, we see signs. Signs are uh, something that does two important things. Number one, they point to something else, not themselves. If you look at a sign out on the road and it says a curve's coming up, the point is not the sign itself, but the fact that you need to slow down because there is a curve coming up. And secondly, they give us information so we can make the right decision. So when I had this problem in my shoulder last year, that was pointing to the fact that I needed to see somebody to figure out what was going on in my body. All signs do those two things. They point to something else, and number two, they're giving you information so that you can make an appropriate decision in light of that. And John, in his gospel, has these seven signs to do the same thing. In fact, they are important to the entire gospel of John. The first 12 chapters of John are very often called the book of signs, because we're going to see, stretching from the 
the wedding there in Cana where Jesus turns water to wine in John chapter 2, all the way through the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11, the seven signs are all located there. And then chapter 12 indicates how everybody had responded to the signs, which was most people rejected what the signs were telling them. And then we just go into Jesus' final, actually in John's gospel, really his final night where we go to uh, the evening in which he is betrayed. And so they're very important, and they're important to understanding the gospel. More people have probably heard of the seven I am sayings in John's gospel, and those are really important. We've taught on those in the past. But John actually tells us that the structure of the gospel and the message of the gospel is found in the signs. At the end of John's gospel, in John chapter 20, he puts it this way. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, these signs that we're going to be looking at, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have life in his name. So there's a lot of other signs. John says these are not the only ones Jesus ever did. In fact, he did many, many others. But John specifically Pick these seven out because he wanted them to do these two things. Number one, to point to another fact, which is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that then we could make the right decision, which is to believe in him. That's why these seven signs are there. So we're going to jump into the series now, and we're going to look at this first sign of water being turned to wine, which I'm calling the Lord of the Wedding Feast, and we will come back to why that is in a few minutes. Now let's, each week we're going to take a little bit of time just to look at the sign itself and then talk about what it means, what it's pointing us towards. Now the background here, John gives us right at the beginning of chapter 2 when he tells us that Jesus goes to a wedding. He says it's on the third day, and if you go back and count in John's uh, days, this is actually the seventh day since John had, called, uh, had started this progression when Jesus is beginning to call the disciples and look what's going on. In chapter 1, verse 19, if you follow the days out, that means it's going to be the seventh day that Jesus is going to be at this wedding. And Jesus, at the end of chapter 1, had met one of his disciples named Nathaniel, and he had promised him that he was going to do far greater miracles than the first miracle that, that Nathaniel uh, encountered, which was Jesus said he had seen him sitting under a tree, not with his physical eyes, but Jesus knew where he had been and what he had been talking about. And Nathaniel was shocked, and Jesus said, oh, you're going to see far greater miracles than that. And uh, this is going to be the first one of these miracles. And it's important for us to understand because one of the big questions that comes up regarding this particular sign is, why would Jesus do this? If, if you're the Lord of glory, coming down to take human flesh, and you're now beginning to announce yourself, why would you pick this little wedding out there and turn water to wine? Well, there's a lot of different reasons, and, and we'll talk about a few of them today, and I'm going to hit a few of them in the After Hours video that will come out on Tuesday. But one of the things is it's really important for us to understand. John the Baptist, who kind of is a major figure in chapter 1, he's an ascetic. He lives out in the wilderness. Remember, he's, he's living off of locusts and wild honey, and he's away from things. And all John usually does is when you come to him, he's pronouncing woes all the time. That's the picture we get, right? It's wearing a camel hair jacket and all this kind of stuff. Jesus is the opposite of that. And we see this throughout the gospel. Jesus at one point even points out and says, look, you all complained about John because he didn't eat or drink. He was always fasting. He never drank wine. I came eating and drinking, and now you say I'm a, I'm a glutton and a drunkard. You, nobody can please you one way or the other. So there's a distinction here, and we learn about Jesus that he has come to be with us. One of the most famous verses in John 1.14, that prologue says, The Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. The message in the gospel is not that you and I climb up to get to God, but rather that God comes to us, which he had also told Nathaniel. He had said, hey, you remember Jacob's ladder? He said, you're going to see the angels ascending and descending upon it on the Son of Man. 
the point there is we sometimes you know you can even hear in some old churches they sing you know i'm climbing jacob's ladder rung by rung here's the message you don't climb jacob's ladder jacob's ladder has come down to you jesus has come to you and to me the gospel is not about what we do but about what christ has done for us and so right from the beginning we see he comes in here and he's not far off in the wilderness he comes to us and he in fact joins in on the celebration but there's a problem at this wedding they're all there and we read in verses three to five that when the wine's gone mary shows up and she just makes an announcement she doesn't ask a question she just says they've run out of wine now This is important for us to grasp. If you've ever been involved in putting on a wedding, you know it's kind of difficult to plan all the time. I remember when we had Stephanie and Seamus' wedding, uh, we went out and we went to the wine store and we bought a whole bunch of wine and a whole bunch of beer and we were trying to figure out how much food do we need and what's going to go on here. And you're frantic that you don't run out of stuff. It's pretty challenging. Well, imagine if you were doing it in the first century because their wedding celebration lasted seven days. Not one seven days there's no way i'd have invited y'all over for seven days i just want you to know that but that's what they had to do the groom is responsible he's been preparing his house for a long time and they bring the bride in this long procession to his house and through the whole town so everybody can pronounce their blessings on him and then they come in and then you start this seven day party and somewhere during this party mary walks into jesus and says uh They've run out of wine. Now, we might think, oh, well, so we just go to water, right? Or break out the soda or something. But see, that's, that's not possible in their culture. This is a huge issue. The rabbis had actually stated there is no rejoicing without wine. You can't rejoice. It's not even possible. If you don't have wine, there is no celebration, period. End of discussion. And so, in the middle of the celebration, it all is about to come crashing to a halt because there is no substitute. So this is a disaster for the new family. Instead of blessing, there's going to be cursing. There's actually evidence that they could be sued by the other villagers. Everybody looks forward to these weddings because it's seven days of a party and you're getting food and you're getting wine and you're getting this. And if the guys run out halfway through, there actually could be legal proceedings. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? But that's the way it was in their culture. They were pretty big into this. So Mary, either possibly Mary may know the family. She may be involved, but somehow Mary's found out that they're out of wine before everybody else knows about it. And she comes to Jesus, and notice, she doesn't even ask him to do anything. She just makes the statement, they're out of wine. But this is that nonverbal communication. Jesus has lived with Mary for 30 years, and he knows there's something more going on. This was not just for his general edification. She's basically saying, they're out of wine. What are you going to do to fix it? And we come to a little bit of a strange reply, because if we're honest, Jesus' reply to Mary strikes us as kind of strange where two reasons. First, he responds and says, woman. Okay? Now, I only jokingly use that title with my wife occasionally because that leads to problems. If I say woman. Okay? But we need to understand this is just a cultural difference. This was done, if you read the, the Odyssey, Homer's ancient Odyssey, that was how Odysseus referred to Penelope. It was just a, a, it was a greeting that could be used. It wasn't usually used of a man with his mother. That is unique, but it was very commonly done. And it, it is not an abrupt, nasty reply like it might sound to our ears. In fact, at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus on the cross, one of the last things he does is he looks down at Mary and he says, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. And he's In essence, saying, I'm making sure, even as I'm in the middle of doing cosmic struggle with evil, saving, uh, making salvation for the humans that I'm calling to myself, oh yeah, by the way, Mom, I'm making sure I take care of you. And he uses the same phrase, woman. So it sounds strange to us, but it wasn't to them. But the next phrase is definitely unusual. The NIV is translated a little bit uh, differently when they say, um, why do you involve me? The literal uh, Greek phrase is, what between you and me? 
That's what it literally says, what between you and me? And this is coming out of an Old Testament phrase where it was used a number of times. It was a, it was a Hebrew idiom. And what it meant was it, it could be used for different reasons, okay? You could use it in different ways. And what it was getting at is sometimes it was, hey, you and I got a problem, and I don't want to communicate with you right now. But it could also mean you're trying to involve me in something that's not really our affair. It could be used in a lot of different ways. Um, and one of the things that can happen here, I thought about this the other day, trying to get across how we do this. Again, there's a communication that goes on. Uh, one of the things my father and I both do that's very helpful for our wives is sometimes when they're cooking in the kitchen, we come along and we start cleaning up. And my wife turns around and she's like, where's the spoon I was using to stir this? And then when she discovers that I have very helpfully put it in the dishwasher, she looks at me and she will say, all right, Jerry Hicks. Now that's my father's name. And what she's saying is, you're doing the same thing to me your dad does to your mom, and you need to stop doing that. But she communicates all of that in this way of saying, all right, Jerry Hicks. So this is a good chance here in public for both my wife and my mom to understand we're really being helpful when we do that. It's not really a problem. Now, I bring this up because it's, yeah, it's Linda's way of communicating with me, and it communicates very, very well. And it's not the exact phrase, but it lets me know okay, I'm not being helpful. I was trying to be helpful, but I'm actually not accomplishing it. Jesus is here communicating with Mary because there's something going on. He's having to establish a little distance because remember, for 30 years, Jesus has been there and he's been at Mary's beck and call. And in fact, there's evidence that Joseph has been dead for quite some time. Notice, Joseph is not in this text. And if you go to the very next verse, in chapter 2, verse 12, you find out that Jesus' brother's and siblings are there. The other children of Mary and Joseph are there at the, in the context because they go off in verse 12. But Joseph's not there because apparently he's been gone. So Jesus has probably been providing for his family. And Mary is used to bringing problems up and Jesus handles them. But see, there's a change happening right now. And so Jesus is kind of pushing back and he's establishing some distance between him and Mary. And he does this because notice the very next thing he says is, my hour has not yet come. Very important phrase in the Gospel of John. When Jesus talks about the hour, he is trying to build up to where he is heading to. For example, in John chapter 7, verse 30, we read, and you can also see this in John 8, 20, the exact same phrase. Jesus is causing a ruckus, as he does throughout the Gospel of John, and the whole crowd, people are wanting to seize him and put him to death. And we read in John 7, 30, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We read that again in chapter 8, when the same thing goes on. Now, what hour are we talking about? Well, in John chapter 12, at the very end of the book of signs, remember I said that the first 12 chapters is all about these signs, and then we see what happens in 13 to 21. Well, in John chapter 12, in verse 23 and 27, Jesus is speaking, and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in verse 27, he says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Everything in my life has been pointing to this hour that is coming up, which is going to be the crucifixion. And in John 13, 1, which is the first verse that's after the book of signs, so to speak, we read this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the hour that Jesus is saying, my hour is not yet come, is the hour where Jesus is going to be crucified, where there is going to be the clash of the kingdoms, and Jesus is going to deal with our sin and it's going to require him to be put to death and he's telling mary up front in essence look you're looking at something yes they've run out of wine 
And Mary is probably wanting Jesus to do something kind of like big and bold. And Jesus is saying, you don't understand. When I start these out, when I do these signs, I'm hitting the timer. And everything starts. And it's all rolling to my hour. And my hour is the hour of my death. And everything is rolling that way. It's what scholars refer to as the messianic secret. Jesus is very careful about what he states to whom and when. How public he is with things. Because as we're going to see next week when we look at the next sign, him cleansing the temple, the second he starts doing things in public, there starts to be severe opposition against him and that opposition only builds and builds and builds throughout the gospel of john so jesus is establishing that for him there is one will and there is one voice that matters and that's not the will and the voice of mary it's the will and the voice of his father everything has to be done according to the plan of the father because he knows that once he reveals who he is it's going to set opposition. One would think these signs are going to just make everybody embrace him. But we're going to see that's not. Some embrace, some become enraged and fight against it. So in short, what Jesus is doing is he's looking at a far bigger picture than what Mary can possibly understand at this point. He's looking with greater depth, and he's kind of reminding her of that fact. And it's a good thing for you and me to remember, just as a little sideline here, See, one of our problems is you and I have very limited perspective. Do you ever cry out for something for God in prayer and then he doesn't seem to answer the way you want and you can't figure out why? But then later on you may discover, oh, there was something else going on. See, the fact is you and I only know the smallest part of what is going on, even in our own life, much less in the world around us God knows all things. And that's exactly what Jesus is stating here is, Mary, you're wanting me to do something and you don't even understand the ramifications of what you're asking. But notice Mary's response, which is pretty interesting. In verse 5, she still looks at the servants, almost like Jesus didn't speak. (laughs) She looks at the servants and says, okay, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, actually, Mary is being an example to you and I because she's responding in faith. Jesus has brushed aside her reply. She's very much like, you remember the Canaanite or the Syrophoenician woman where she comes and says, Lord, I want you to heal my daughter. And Jesus gives her that great reply and says, it's not good. It's not right for me to give the food for the children to the dogs. I mean, there's a harsh word. And she responds and says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall off the table. She responds in faith because she's saying, no matter what goes on here, Jesus, I know you are the answer to my problem. And Mary's doing the same thing. Okay, I don't understand what he just said about this hour thing and all of that, but here's what I do know. You all just need to do whatever he tells you to do. Because I do know he is the solution to the problem. I may not understand what he's saying and what he's doing right now, which is very often the way we are as disciples. But he does know what he is doing, and he responds in faith. Friends, that is so much of the Christian life right there. If you hear people who explain to you that they always know what God is doing, there's a word for that. They're called liars. They don't know what God is doing. I have no clue what he's doing most of the time. He knows what he's doing. And the good thing is, I don't have to know. I'm not running the universe. I just need to be like Mary and say, whatever he says, I'll do. Just whatever he tells me, I'm going to do that. I may not understand what he's doing, but he's in charge. He knows what he's doing. So what Jesus does then is we're told that there's these six huge stone pots that are there. And John explains to us the reason they're stone is because they're used for purification. So they couldn't be wood. They had to be made out of stone. And these are really huge pots. Each one of them um, holds 20 to 30 gallons. So there's 120 to 150 gallons of water that could be there. But Jesus wants to make sure that there's no question what's in there. So he has them... He tells the servants, okay, draw out water, go out to the well and bring it in and fill these pots up. And John tells us they are filled right to the brim. They're as full as they can possibly get. Now, let's be honest. If you're the servants, you're thinking, 
how is this solving the problem and no wine? It makes no sense. But Jesus says, fill them up to the brim. And then he tells them, okay, draw some water out of the pot you just filled with water and take it over to the master of the feast. He's the guy who's responsible to kind of seat people around and check out what's going on, making sure everything is going the way it's supposed to at the, uh, at the wedding. And so they take it over to him, and all John says, and I love this, he does not describe how it happens exactly, when it happened or anything. He just says the water had been turned to wine. Okay, another tip for you. We love, when we look at science, we like asking when and how. The Scripture is not really interested in that question. The Scripture's interested in who and why. Different questions. So it doesn't tell us what process was used to turn the water into wine or any of that. It doesn't tell us exactly when it happened even. Was it when they put it in the pot? Was it Not interested in that. Here's what's important. Jesus did it. And he did it for a particular reason, which we're going to come to in just a minute. And so he takes it to the master of the feast. And what's really funny is it's kind of hysterical in the story. The master of the feast tastes it and says, you know, we're going to come in a second. Wow, this is great wine. He has no clue where it came from. John tells us specifically he doesn't even know. He just thinks it's the new wine bottles that got opened up. The servants knew. They're like, what in the world is going on here? We took water in, now we got wine, and this guy says it's the best wine. But he doesn't even know the guy that's the first guy that is tasting the first miracle of the Son of God coming to us does not have a clue what's going on. He's oblivious. But notice the result is, in verses 9 and 10, he calls the bridegroom aside and he says, look, here's what everybody else does. I've been around these weddings for a long time. You bring out the good wine up front, and then after everybody's been drinking wine for a few days, and their palate's not so good anymore, they're not noticing, you start bringing out the cheap wine. And in, in Israel, what they did very often is you'd mix the wine with water. You just start mixing a lot more water in with the wine. You start getting newer wine that's not very good, and this is what you give them. He said, but holy cow, you did the exact opposite. I thought that was okay wine before. You've saved the best. This is the best wine of the entire celebration. Now imagine the bridegroom is standing there, and what he knows is, actually, I screwed up. We ran out of wine. I have no idea what you are talking about. You want a picture of the gospel? There's the gospel. You and I stand there as the bridegroom getting full credit for what Jesus did. We didn't do anything. We messed up. We didn't have enough wine for the celebration. Now, not only has Jesus turned water into wine, it's the best wine that was there the entire time. I can think of no better picture of the gospel. That's exactly what's going to happen on Judgment Day. You're going to stand there, and the Father's going to say, that is righteousness right there. And you and I are looking around like, who, me? Who are you talking to? But see, that's exactly what happens. So this is what's gone on. This is the way of the gospel. Now, why this sign? Let's be, I mean, okay, so Jesus did it, but is this like a parlor trick? I mean, you turned water into wine? Why would you do this? Well, it actually is a perfectly appropriate first sign because the reality is it's showing us who Jesus is, that he's the Lord of the wedding feast. And there's two ways it does this. First, this sign reveals that Jesus is the Lord of the New Covenant, and he is here inaugurating the New Covenant. He's beginning the work for it. Now, why do I say this? Every one of the signs go back to John's prologue, the first 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes all the way through 18 verses, and all of them are setting us up for the Gospel. And John 1, 16 and 17 we read this, and I'm using the ESV here because the, the NIV translated the word grace as blessing. I'm not sure why, but uh, this is a more literal translation of the Greek. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, or grace on top of grace. For the law was given through Moses. 
Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So notice there, grace is actually mentioned three times in those two verses. If you're using the NIV where they say one blessing after another, blessing and another is actually the word grace. The word charis uh, is what it is in the Greek. And notice there is a contrast going on here. Moses had come and he had brought the old covenant. He had brought the law. But we're told Jesus comes and he brings grace upon grace. He brings grace and truth. There's a contrast between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Jesus. The covenant that comes under Moses and the covenant that comes under Jesus. And here's what's amazing. If you remember when Moses inaugurates the old covenant, he goes down into Egypt and he does ten signs. And the actual word that is used is signs. We usually refer to them as plagues because his signs were in fact plagues. They brought judgment because that is what the law does to sinful human beings. So he goes down and Moses does these signs. Same exact Greek word is used here. Same aeon. It's the same word. He does these signs. And if you remember back, what was the first sign that Moses did in Egypt? He sticks his staff into the river Nile and the water becomes blood. But when Jesus comes, he speaks a word and water becomes wine. Because he's not come to bring curse, he's come to bring blessing. If you remember, Moses does all of his signs and you come to the last sign. And what's the last sign? The death of the child. Jesus is going to go to his sign and what's the last sign he's going to do? He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Because friends, here's the good news. You are not under the Mosaic covenant of law. You are under the grace of the new covenant that Jesus Christ has brought to you. Because if you want it by your works, all your water will become blood and everything you do will lead to death. But when Jesus Christ has come, he turns everything you and I do into the wine of celebration, and he turns even that which deserves death into life. And so this first sign is telling us that Jesus is turning the water of old covenant rituals. Remember, where do they get the water from? Six stone pots that are used for ceremonial washings. All the washings of the law. Because Jesus is letting him know, see those washings never cleanse you. They never accomplish it. And I am here as Lord of the new covenant to say that all of the ceremonies that Moses set up, they've all reached fulfillment. And they now come to me and I'm going to provide real cleansing for sin. Everything that was not accomplished in the law, I am now going to bring to fruition. The sign reveals that the ministry of lesser glory has been turned into ministry of greater glory. The ministry of Moses has been turned into the Lord of the new covenant. I I can't even take time to develop this more. If you look on Tuesday when we do the after hours video, or actually, excuse me, we'll talk about it a little bit there, but actually in... um, In the devotional guide, if you look, one of the questions for one of the days is go back and look at 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. Paul talks about this all the time, that you remember Moses' glory was fading, but ours grows even more. He contrasts the ministry of the letter that brings death with the spirit that brings life. And he talks about how much greater is the glory of the new covenant. That is all a reflection on exactly what is going on here. The ministry of Moses, the ministry of the law, there is no problem with the law. The law is holy and perfect and good. Why doesn't the law work? Because of us. That's exactly why it doesn't work. Because of us. But the ministry that Jesus brings even overcomes that. Now, the next part of this is, well, well, why water to wine? And why at this wedding feast? Well, Wine in the scripture is a sign of God's blessing. I'll again, there'll be another, we're actually doing a second after hours video this week where I'll kind of go through the question of what about wine and alcohol. Christians in America have messed this whole question up. So I'm just going to run through real briefly a few things. 
Wine is actually a symbol of God's blessing in the Scripture. For example, in Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, Psalm 104 is a hymn to God's wisdom in creation and how He provides blessing to every animal, to all creatures, and to human beings. And notice verse 14, it says, He makes grass to grow for the cattle. Cattle. Is that a blessing or a curse for cattle? It's a blessing. And plants for people to cultivate. Are those plants that we get our food from curse or blessing? Blessing. He brings forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread to sustain their hearts. Wine's a blessing. It's one of the blessings that God gives to us. It was always a sign of blessing. Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. This is just two. There's a whole bunch of these verses. We're told, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. It's a sign. God's blessing of us. How do we know? My vats are brimming over with new wine. That's how I know that I am under the blessing of God. And in fact, it became specifically associated with the Messianic age. When the Messiah was to come, there was a strong reference point to that the the hills were going to flow with wine. I'm going to give you just two verses that show this. There's many more, but Amos chapter 9, verses 13 and 14 is talking about the Messiah coming, and it says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. Get the picture. The the guy's not even finished plowing, and the reaper's getting in front of him because the stuff's growing before he can even get it plowed. That's a good picture of grace right there, by the way. Uh, He's overtaken by the plowman, the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. Notice exile ended. Messiah is here. And one of the key blessings is there's not only wine, there's abundant wine. The the hills are just flowing with the stuff. You can't even get out to start cultivating the grapevines and there's already wine being made. Okay, that's a sign of blessing. Joel chapter 3 verse 18, same kind of sign. In that day the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. So notice in both texts, God speaking of bringing his exiles back, uh, which is the Messianic age. And both of them speak of the blessings in terms of overflowing abundant wine. So when Jesus comes and he's announcing the Messiah you've waited for is here, what's going to be the first sign? You're going to make overflowing, abundant wine. This was what was in virtually every Messianic text. They all talked about this. Everybody's going to sit under their own fig tree and under their own vine, and they're going to produce their own wine. This was all over the Old Testament. And so Jesus comes, and he produces overflowing, abundant wine to bless the people, and it shows that he is the Messiah, and he is inaugurating the new covenant and the Messianic age. And he does this at a wedding because the other thing that's associated with it is when the Messiah comes, there's going to be the wedding supper of the Lamb. Okay, and remember in John 1, there's so much stuff here. I wish I could unpack it all. In John 1, what's the first thing John the Baptist says about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now in chapter 2, the first thing Jesus actually does is he turns water into wine at a wedding. The lamb has come, he comes to a wedding because it is all pointing forward to the wedding supper of the lamb. So John says, Jesus does this and reveals his glory. This is not a parlor trick. This is Jesus saying, everything you've looked for in the old covenant, all the promises you've been longing for, I'm telling you, I'm here. I have begun this. The messianic age is starting. The new covenant is here. It's no more water to blood and death upon the firstborn. It's water to the wine of blessing. It is life out of the tomb because Messiah has come. That's the message of what he is doing for us. So how do we respond to this? How do do we apply this word? This is going to be the question throughout this series. And in this particular text, 
the response is good and right. We'll see next week it's the exact opposite response. And we're going to see that back and forth throughout the Gospel of John. Notice in verse 11 that we're told what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. I wish I could even go on. The word first there, just a little freebie for you, is actually not the normal Greek word for first. It's actually the word that is usually translated beginning. The same word that in the beginning was the word. He's the beginning of the old creation and he is right here beginning the new creation. John is tying all this together. And he says it's the beginning of his signs to which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Remember John 20, 30 and 31. What's the purpose of the signs? They're calling forth faith. They are saying Messiah is here. Do you believe? The disciples see and believe. And think about it through the text. Mary acts in faith. She doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. She doesn't know how he's going to resolve this, but she believes and she tells the people, do whatever he says. The servants sit there. They don't argue with Jesus. That's not resolving the problem. You better get down to town and buy some wine. They just do what they're told. And then the disciples see this and they believe. Throughout the story, everyone who's aware of what's going on and sees the sign believes. And that's exactly what John is calling for from us. This sign was recorded so that every one of us would believe. So the first question that comes to each and every human hearing this is, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? Do you believe that he's the one that the entire Old Testament pointed towards? That all of human history has its focal point in him and his coming? Do you believe that? Do you believe he has come to offer grace and forgiveness? The problem that human beings have is when we think about honestly being confronted with the holy God, our response is what we see. You remember when when Peter sees a miracle of Jesus in one of the Gospels? You remember he goes out fishing, been fishing all night long. Jesus does a sign. He tells him cast over on this side and pull him out, and he does it. Peter's response is immediately, Lord, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. And if we are honest, that is our response to the holiness of God. But here's the good news. The Messiah has come, and he comes to us. And he's not coming bringing judgment. He is coming bringing grace. He is coming bringing blessing and life for you and for me. Despite how we fall short, despite what our sin is, do we believe he has come to do that? Do we believe he's inaugurated the new covenant, that he's inaugurated the new age, which requires, see, one of the stumbling blocks that happened there, Jesus looks so ordinary, and all the problems are still here in the world. Are they not? I mean, we look, sometimes it's hard to say, Lord, this is the new age. You're beginning this already, because it's a mess out there. But the sign tells us, yes, he has inaugurated the new age, and the finality will come. This is all a down payment. It guarantees that what God has promised will be done. I urge every person here, believe and receive life in his name. Now to us as believers, if you are a believer, this points towards the table. And it points towards the table of the wedding feast. It's not surprising, of course, when you go to John chapter 13, we come to the, all seven signs are done. And then the very next thing Jesus does is he inaugurates this meal right here in John chapter 13. And it's not really surprising because it's the culmination of all the signs. Jesus gives us this to remember him. Because at this table, we look back and reflect on all he did in the first coming. But we also look at this table, and he told us to be looking forward to when he returns, and there is the final wedding supper of the Lamb, the feast that we have all been waiting for. This meal, every time we come to this table, you and I not only look back, we look forward to on the day 
there is going to come the day that the person who's going to break the bread and hand it to you is not going to be some silly person like me. It's going to be Jesus Christ himself. And on that day, Isaiah tells us what it's going to be like. I'm not going to put this verse up just here. This is what it will be like on that day. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And in that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That's what awaits you and me as believers because Jesus is the Lord of the wedding feast. So I want to urge you this morning, come to the table, come in faith, and receive what God has for you. If you are here as a visitor, you are welcome to participate at this table with us. You do not have to be a member of Bay Ridge. You just have to be a believer that you understand the gospel. You're like the bridegroom there at the feast. All you've done is colossally mess up. But Jesus has fixed it. He has resolved it. If you believe that, you are welcome to eat along with us. And as always, if you need a gluten-free option, you can just raise your hand and we will bring it to you. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you that you invite us to this table. Lord, on our own, we would have no right, but you have prepared this as the pointer to that final great feast where we will sit and eat and drink, not only with the people of God, but with you, our God. So Lord, come and meet us by your Holy Spirit in this sacrament we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. We will take them together in just three or four minutes. Father, you are the almighty maker of heaven and earth. We owe our very existence to you. Yet as ungrateful children, we rebelled, bringing down your righteous judgment and wrath upon us. And consequently, your law, which is true and holy and glorious, became for us a source of death rather than life. But we give you thanks that where Moses had brought the law, Jesus came and brought grace and truth. As the Messiah and Son of God, he took our flesh and fulfilled the law in our place. He bore the curse of the law that we might receive its blessings. And in taking this bread this morning, we proclaim that we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the source of eternal life. Take and eat.
Jesus, by our sins, we deserve the cup of the Father's wrath. But as the promised Messiah, you have come to give us the cup of blessing and life. The Scriptures promise that when you came, the wine of your blessing would drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. But to bring that blessing, you had to spill your blood for us. You drank the bitter cup of wrath and death to its dregs, and you offer us the full, overflowing cup of blessing and life. So today we take this cup of life in faith, proclaiming that we believe you are the Messiah, the eternal Son of God, and that your blood has brought us every blessing and true life. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, fill our lives with the blessings of the Messianic age. As we trust in you and your promises, give us the wine that gladdens our hearts, oil to make our face shine, and bread to sustain our hearts. Cause our lives to overflow with the abundant blessings that Jesus came to bring. And as we receive and enjoy these blessings, create in us a longing for the blessings of the eternal kingdom, an eager expectation that one day we will sit and eat the feast of rich food and well-aged wine. When death has been swallowed up in life, all of our tears have been wiped away and our faith has become sight. Holy Spirit of the living God, do this, we ask, in the name of Jesus, the Lord of the wedding feast. And God's people say, amen. Let's stand together for a closing benediction. And this is actually, I've taken a couple of passages out of Genesis 27 and Deuteronomy 33. So I encourage you to receive the blessing of your God. May God give you of heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine with the choicest gifts of the ancient mountains and the fruitfulness of the everlasting hills, with the best gifts of the earth and the favor of our Lord until you sit at his wedding feast on the final day. Go forth with abundant blessings from Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.